ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello? Can you hear me? Or are you just with Optus? Yes, this week on Download This Show, how did one of Australia's biggest telecommunications companies leave millions of customers with no phone service or access to the internet for several hours? Also on the show, the crypto king is found guilty of fraud and Facebook's new rules on fact-checking AI ads. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a big welcome to Jessica Sire, tech reporter for the Australian Financial Review. Don't laugh at me, you're already, the show hasn't started and you're Hi, laughing Mark. at me. Hello, welcome to the show. And a newly demustachioed Alex McCauley, the founder of the Tech Council. Welcome back. Thank you, Mark. I thought one of the things about radio was you didn't have to talk about your appearance. Well. <laughs> Some of us like to objectify the guests, and today it's you. <laughs> it's lovely to have Brilliant. you both here in studio today. And good news that you actually got the message to be here, given uh, one of Australia's biggest telecommunications company was out not that long ago. Much hand-wringing has been done around the Optus outage of last week. To the best of our knowledge, and I should say that we do record this uh, a little bit earlier than it goes to where, so this information may change over time, but to the best of our knowledge, Jess, give me the TikTok of what happened on the day. Well, none of our phones worked. Some of the trains in Melbourne didn't work. Uh, no one could call triple zero for a while. Lots of payments couldn't be accepted in cafes and restaurants around the country. I think as far as we understand, it was a network, a technical network fault. I don't know what that means. And I dare say lots of people don't. Do you know, Alex? <laughs> You're from the tech council, do you know? I definitely don't know. When something like this happens, where do they start with an investigation? Like just in general terms. I presume Optus has knows more about what the fault is than they've said to the media, and or therefore that I've read about. Um, and they will no doubt cooperate with investigators because it's in their interest to do so. But it, I, I imagine it'll take some time to really get to the bottom of where, why, and how to stop it from happening again. How did you evaluate the communication, Alex, from Optus? Uh, well, it was it was slow to come. <laughs> and it's almost like the people that work at Optus Comms had Optus phones. Yeah, well, exactly. If you could receive the communication yesterday, <laughs> um, you were doing pretty well to start with. There have been a few times over the last couple, year or two where Optus has been under the spotlight for their communications and I don't know if they covered themselves in glory yesterday either. What do you think, Jess? I think it was awful. I think to not get on the front foot of a of an event like this, which affected so many people. Like it's so different if like your app doesn't work or your cafe doesn't open or your gym or whatever. This is like a piece of critical infrastructure that affects so many lives and just the operations of the country and to not have clear communication so that the media can do their job and broadcast that to more people, uh, I think was really like a failing. The way that it's handled, and I don't know how much your readers are that interested, or sorry. Readers? <laughs> sorry. I don't know how much your listeners are interested in how the media sausage is made, but the idea of like the executive going out and speaking to individual media outlets at disparate times during the day and giving out bits of information is just so unhelpful, um, not just for journalists trying to do their jobs, but um, for customers trying to figure out or businesses trying to figure out whether or not they're going to be online in the next 24 hours or something. I think it was a real failing. We should have learned something a little bit from the pandemic where actually there is benefit in like communal press 
conferences where everyone finds out. That's all they had to do was hold a press conference and then all the press gets the same message at the same time and then disseminates it for their audiences. It's, It's just not a tricky thing to manage. And the thing is, because the outage went on for so long and there was no information forthcoming, the gap of information just gets filled with speculation and you just kind of want to manage that, mm. I think. When this happens overseas, because I, I know there was a, I won't say the same story, but a story with some similar touch points in Canada, I think it was a couple of years, uh, some time ago, and they have looked at enforcing a situation where if a telco goes down, there's almost like a forced roaming thing that happens where if you go down, if you know you go down, you almost like global roaming, you get handed over to another telecommunications company, except this time it's not in another country, it's the one in the same country. What's stopping us from doing that? Is there anything stopping us from doing that, Alex? I presume just, I mean, firstly, brilliant idea. Obviously, it should be there. Um, This is, as um, we just said, critical infrastructure that can't be allowed to just be down all day. Um, And I presume the only thing that's stopping it from happening is competition, you know, um, unless they're forced to do it. Why would they do it? You'd have to figure that that must come up in the forthcoming in, uh, inquiry, right, Jess? Absolutely, yeah. I think that is the answer. I think um, telcos in Australia have been really reluctant to share their spectrum or their bandwidth with each other because of the fear that it'll eat into their market share. But I think, I mean, the government's made so many strides in the last 12 months, two years to ensure that Australia's critical infrastructure is protected, particularly from nation states and cyber attacks and things like this. Um, The idea that that Optus had some kind of like single point of failure like this is just, yeah, I mean, it they deserve the scrutiny. They deserve. And I like perhaps that's part of the communications thing is like we don't want to have someone saying, well, why did you have such a, a single point of failure that seemed to cascade throughout the entire business and you couldn't fix it for 12 hours? I mean, don't you war game this kind of scenario? I mean, it's going to get more and more difficult for a company of this size to avoid that kind of scrutiny. Did it change how you feel about our reliance on technology, Alex? No, but it did make me sad that... <laughs> That it will give a lot of ammo to people who, you know, don't want us to be so reliant on technology, don't want the world to move forward in that way. I, you know, I listened to the, the great ABC this morning on a bit of talkback radio and there were lots of people calling in saying, oh, I only use cash and this is why. And I think that will give, you know, they'll give a bit more credit to that kind of philosophy for a bit longer, um, mm. which I just think is annoying from my perspective. <laughs> Others might disagree. Did it change how you feel about our reliance on technology, Jess? No, it just changed the way I think I feel about Optus as a manager of critical infrastructure. Like the amount of data that like most most of the, the bandwidth of these companies or the spectrum, as they say, is like is data moving around in packets across all of our devices. And the way that we do our jobs, the way the economy is run is across these networks and through these channels. And if you want to make money by providing the channels to all of us, you got to make sure those channels work. So, yeah, I mean, whether or not we use technology less, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice if the phones go down for a while. Like, <laughs> sure, if you're in the bush and you're having a nice time or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a journo, man. I was on the uh, – every time I tried to make a call yesterday, it just – I couldn't do it and I'd have to go into signal. And what's hilarious is some of my the people I were calling were like, Jess? 
why are you calling me on signal? Is Wait, something secret sign- happening? Because oh, I was on the Wi-Fi. Oh, right. I was like, how are you getting signal to work? Yeah, right. yeah. But I'm calling through all these other like channels yeah. and yeah, people were really, really sus on why I was calling on these like usually quite surreptitious apps. I suddenly became hyper aware of like free wi- Wi-Fi spots. Yeah. <laughs> sure. in, in that way that you only ever do when you're like overseas. Backpacking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it had a very backpacking vibe to it. It's interesting the thing you were saying, Alex, about people who are let's say tech averse beyond the fact that you're from the tech council why does it bother you it doesn't bother me at an individual level at all i think the point i was making was really just you know there's there's always resistance to things like going ca- cashless etc mm. you know I, i've loved this sort of ubiquity recently of being able to tap your card or tap your phone. I've sort of been proud of Australia for being out in front on that stuff when I travel to the US and people are still paying with checks. Mm. I'm like, so I kind of, I love that and I love that we're sort of out in front of it and anything like this tends to hold that back, I think. It's also why I never know where my my wallet is anymore. (laughs) Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. I should say that we are recording this a few days before it goes to air. So there may be new information that comes out between when we've recorded this and when we go to air. So just bear that in mind as you're listening. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Jess, the biggest story in crypto has been unfolding in the US and you have been talking about it. Tell me what's happened. So... Sam Bankman-Fried is the founder of a crypto exchange called FTX, which was very, very popular until about November last year when it collapsed. Um, I think think spectacularly collapsed. Spectacularly blew up. And about $8 billion was missing from this, (laughs) of customer money was missing from this exchange. And the trial of the founder and the CEO of the FTX exchange, Sam Bankman-Fried, was found guilty of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud. And we're just sort of hanging about, waiting to see how much time in jail he's going to get. Time in jail is important, but also what happened to the money? Does anyone, did, did through that process, did we find out? Oh, yeah. So... FTX was run by a bunch of like 28, 29, 30-year-old crypto people and they all came from like quant trading land. So they were all, quant trading is like where you use really fast internet speeds and information to eke out tiny little trading gains. And so they'd set up this exchange and in parallel to this crypto exchange where we could all get on there and we could buy and sell cryptocurrencies. And what made FTX so popular in the first instance was that you could trade on margin, which means you could borrow money to maximise your trade. So if you had $100, you could borrow, say, $100 more, and if uh, you double your money, you double your money, right? But the problem with that is that you can be wiped out Mm. as well. And so anyway, so FTX is really popular because you could trade on margin and so people could amplify their bets. They also had a um, a quant trading firm, a hedge fund, that Sam Bankman-Fried and his geeky friends were running on the side. The business of that hedge fund was only to make money. They were not very good at making money for a period of time and to plug a massive hole in their balance sheet, they took $8 billion of FTX customer money and brought it over to Alameda Research, that was the hedge fund's name, and kind of lost that. So that's what we found out in the trial was exactly how those mechanisms worked, how that money moved across, and the fact that Mr Bankman-Fried 
knew about it the whole time. And also owned Alameda Research, right? Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, it was his <laughs> It was his hedge fund. So we can basically clock with an egg timer how long it'll take for somebody to turn this into one of those docudramas. I reckon it's underway. Michael Lewis, you know, this financial journal who wrote Moneyball, that oh, movie, yeah. has already published a book because he was, he was randomly tailing Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he's known in the industry, he was tailing this guy for the 12 months before the collapse even happened. So, like, on the day... It's like he that knew ex- something we didn't. Well... <laughs> I think it was just like a crazy story, right? This Mm. 29-year-old dude from like Stanford University or MIT, but his parents were Stanford professors, just all of a sudden (laughs) is like worth billions and billions of dollars in the space of two years, like wild. So It's like the greatest hits of everything that's terrible about tech bros. All right, Alex, um, has this changed how you think people will take up and engage with cryptocurrencies? Because cryptocurrencies are unlikely to go anywhere, but I do think... You'd have to acknowledge it's going to take it. It takes a hit on its confidence level. Oh yeah, I mean, well, does the verdict change it? I don't know. Probably not. No, I, I mean, think the eight billion dollar yeah, loss. Yeah, the eight billion dollar <laughs> loss has changed it already. I mean, crypto is and Web three even have been off the agenda really for the last year or so. It's really been a huge hard crash since about Q1 last year. Okay, so there's a, a shift in the centre of gravity in the tech world where once upon a time everyone wanted to talk about cryptocurrencies and I suppose I'd probably put um, non-fungible tokens in there as well and Web3 and now everyone's gone AI. Well, not everyone, but there's a, there's a shift in, in people's focus and attention. Cryptocurrency is for lack of a better term, still a thing. There's still a number of them out there. Some of them are very stable. Some of them are not. What we've got here is a situation where it's one, you know, spectacular crash of an exchange. Do we see other exchanges kind of doing things to build confidence in it as as a marketplace? I mean, I don't have any uh, real visibility over any of the other exchanges doing anything particular. I think most of the people I speak to aren't just aren't talking about crypto anymore. They're not investing in it. Then they don't they invest in companies that are doing anything with it. So I suspect it's just in a bit of a hiatus in between, you know, phases. Um, crypto has always been pretty cyclical. Uh, you look at the price of Bitcoin over the last. 10 or 15 years, it's got huge ups and downs, and this is definitely a, a sort of down in interest and price. Mm. But I don't think it's done so by any means. Is it like punk? It's not dead, it's just gone to bed, Jess? Yeah, a bit like that, I think. Um, what's remarkable about this massive collapse and Sam Bankman Fried being found guilty of all these charges is like he was found guilty of fraud, which is oldest time. Like whether you're doing it with digital assets, whether you're doing it with whatever widget, whatever market. What he did was um, fail to have any governance controls or quality controls on the processes in a business. Uh, I think the weird wash up of all this is like all the crypto exchanges that are still in operation, who perhaps were running things a bit loosey-goosey, are tightening it up really, really, really fast because they have seen that this guy, you can be found guilty of fraud even if you're operating in the wild west of crypto. Like We talk a lot that there's about there not being enough regulation for crypto businesses and, you know, in laws they aren't defined and so that, sure, that's an issue or whatever. But when you're taking customer money to plug your losses in another business, that's pretty straightforward, that's pretty black and white and the law will find you. Download this show is what you're listening to. And uh, speaking of things about AI, Meta, the company that own Facebook and Instagram, announced an interesting new policy around political advertising and AI. Alex, what happened? Yeah, this is a really interesting story. So it's basically Meta saying, if you've used AI to generate content, you've got to say so. You've got to label it as 
having been made with AI. And so, you know, they're envisaging people, particularly in the lead up to next year's uh, US election, they're envisaging people, you know, making videos and images and stories about stuff that didn't really happen, Mm -hmm. about a future that they're imagining, but which, you know, is AI generated. And they're they're saying, well, you've got to put a label on that so that people who are, who are looking at it know that it's not necessarily reality. Is it specifically just stuff that's advertising or is it all content? I understood it to be specifically stuff that's advertising. Okay, so here's why I'm curious about it, right? Because when it comes to content around a US presidential election, which I'm sure will be very civil, I don't think the issue is necessarily political. I, I think it's a good policy. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a good thing conceptually, but I don't think the issue is going to be stuff that comes from the DNC and the RNC. I think it's going to be the wild amount of meme content that gets out there that has there is no control over. That's the stuff that will be the problem. Thoughts and feelings, Jess? You know, yeah, you've just painted like such an image in my mind of like this wave of just garbage <laughs> internet content that's about to like be an onslaught into our lives. I wish that there existed something like drug testing for this where you could just sort of drop a couple of drops in your powder just and it turns a colour and you go, ah, oh, fake, or like it's this. <laughs> like I wish that there were more tools for running content through so that users can start to manage themselves? I mean, well, it's actually interesting because there is an idea called content credentials. I think we talked about last week on the show where um, there you should be able to click on images and see how have they been edited. Um, and I know Adobe, who are the people obviously behind Photoshop, who are actually out there selling their ability to, you know, j- uh, have generative AI in pictures now. It's in the, all their advertising. They've now, I think in concert with that function, added a tool where you can actually see like, we cropped this, we added a unicorn and, and those things like that. I think there's likely to be more of that stuff that comes out, but whether or not people actually use it and are aware of it. Well, I mean, this isn't a new topic, right? I mean, we've been talking about fake news on social media and particularly on Facebook with relation to the US presidential election since 2016, really, since Trump won the first time. And it's less about whether you used AI to generate the content and more about whether the content is fake news. And there's a continuing conversation with all the social media providers about the level with which they should be assessing content, not just ads, which is what this is about, but all content on the platform for veracity and labeling it. I mean, I think Twitter did it, has done it the last couple of elections, and I think they XX now is not doing it. I think they've moved away from that. Um, No, this is definitely a conversation, not just for the US, not just for Meta, but for all the social media platforms. And it's about how we receive our information The drug testing idea and content credentials are kind of interesting models for this, but I think part of the issue is it's like the wave, right? It's the wave of of content that's going to happen and it's it's completely uncontrollable, which is, of course, one of the things we like about the internet. It, It happens at great speed, but it does mean when you do find these issues around fake news or AI generated imagery, you're sort of staring at a fire hose going... I wonder if I could put you through a colander. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, is there, is there, are there models out there that you've seen or heard of that might actually be able to navigate a problem of this scale, Jess? Oh, I would go so analog and I would just say it's critical thinking is the main thing. If you're really going to address the wave, I think is like the responsibility has to kind of end up being on the person, not necessarily the publishing platform. Oh, I don't know if I really think that. Surely it's a I, I think in, in reasonable terms, you, you need a combination, right? You need there to be some, you can't yeah. just let 
push all the responsibility on the user, but I don't. I also think you, we should get smarter. Yeah. But at the same time, companies must have a role as well. Yeah. And the truth is these companies are all, they have huge teams of content moderating people. They have- Except algor- for Twitter. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter doesn't have a huge a team full room. stop. Yeah. Now. So they have huge teams of content moderation people. They have algorithms that are working on stuff, you know, very sophisticated algorithms, particularly on video stuff at YouTube and Twitch and other video platforms to so they can assess content of videos because that's obviously particularly precarious um, for online safety. So um, this is happening at scale at tech companies. They know they have some kind of responsibility. It's unclear how much we expect it to be them and how much we expect it to be users. Um, and I think probably with, and I'm hesitant to say this given what I, I know we're going to talk about next, but <laughs> AI actually has a role to play here on veracity checking. Um, if you've got software that understands what's out there on the internet and you know can kind of reason a little bit, then it can help sort of at scale understand whether things are just totally made up or whether they're built on credible sources, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I should. I'm sort of um, at pains to point out that AI is not a monolithic technology. What we're talking no, about right. is right. It's a suite of technologies that can be both part of, not the problem, the problems, and also part of the solutions, right? And I think it may be, may be pushing everything into a singular like AI good, AI bad is not necessarily the most constructive way of executing this. That balancing act between how much of this is a responsibility of tech companies and I suppose government and us as, as, as internet users is there a good version of that balance that, that you see is, is attainable or at least something to aim for? Yeah. I, one factor that I would put out there is if you think it's on the users to make critical assessments, or at least you think part of it's on users to look at stuff and make a, use their critical thinking to make an assessment about veracity, you need to help them have the information to make that call. Oh, um, that's interesting. Which, which is part of what they're like labeling, you know, well, this isn't backed up by you know, credible sources or check this fact, you know, sort of like. Do you think that there is like a a huge shift in like scepticism of stuff on the web now because of all this? Do you think that's like this major cultural shift that we have like kind of across the generations even where younger people who are so digitally native, so completely technically fluent can sort of say, well, if it's a picture on the web, I'm going to assume that a machine has touched this at some point. Yeah, I, I hope so, but I don't necessarily think that's ubiquitous. I right. think there are groups of people for whom that they have, have more of that sure. kind of um, filter and groups of people for whom they've basically had less and, you know, you've seen the rise of lots of conspiracy theorist movements and um, the QAnon stuff and all the rest of it where that's kind of almost exaggerated by a lack of engaging critically with whatever you're seeing. So. Mm. I do wonder that lack of trust that you're identifying, how it changes us and how it changes with the way we interact with each other. And I, and I mean that like on a human level. And I don't feel good about that future, Jess. Yeah, I mean how we interact with each other on a human level. Like unless I saw the guy or heard him say it or her say it, then I'm going to be sceptical of this whatever, you know. I mean and you can sort of extrapolate this out into the – what the role of the media in this is fact checkers of information and whether or not like what you can trust as a source of truth. I think the practitioner of being a reporter or something that is changing, like the skills themselves are changing, but it's almost like the need for them to exist to do the checking on behalf of an audience or the masses, like 
that's picking up. So if there's any like grade 12 students, come be a journalist. <laughs> yeah. Please do. Uh, just to add to that point, I think one of the things that's been really clear in the sort of changing, land, the hugely changing landscape of the, the media globally over the last 20 years um, with the internet has been first a fracturing, but then a real coalescence around really valuable brands that mm. have built a lot of trust. And so if you see a video on the New York Times or in The Economist or something, you're going to believe it. Whereas if you see it floating around on Twitter or on Meta, you you, mm. you might have a critical filter that you apply to it about whether it's Absolutely, real or not. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's actually quite valuable for high quality journalism, I think, and in a way that then brings back some of that cachet into the into the industry. Just staying on the on the topic of AI, uh, just almost almost to look at it from another angle. Uh, an interesting story in the last couple of days that KPMG has lodged a complaint after AI generated material was used to implicate them in non existent scandals. I don't like, just. Just walk me through this one, Jess, because this one's actually quite complex. This is my favourite story of this week. A group of academics have put forward a submission into a Senate inquiry that details all of these like bad things that KPMG is said to have done. But it turns out that their submission was AI generated and none of these case studies ever happened at all. And now KPMG is like up in arms because it has been misrepresented by a group of ac- academics who, you know, are professional thinkers who used AI and it spat out a bunch of lies. How did this happen, Alex? <laughs> like, seriously, how? Uh, this is pretty tough, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to go easy on the big four, but you, you shouldn't, as KPMG or anyone else, have to siphon through parliamentary materials for fake news that's been submitted by academic, credible academics out- outlining, you know, misconduct that you just weren't involved in. I suspect it's just teething around how people use AI for important and serious stuff. Ironically, one of the co-authors who wasn't responsible for using AI in this case, one of the co-authors on the submission had recently published a paper about the dangers of using AI in academic research. <laughs> Um, which is just the icing on the cake for this story. But anyone who's used AI in a professional context or who has thought about ways that they might be able to use it has probably thought, well, you know, it's going to have to be the computer plus human to make it my work, not just something that's cooked up on the, uh, you know, by an artificial intelligence. So did they just use AI to trawl together a bunch of stories around like scandals to kind of add in the middle of a submission? Is that Because I'm thinking about how it would have happened, right? And I think they asked ChatGPT, and I don't know this. But I, think it was, I think it was Bard. That oh, they used. sorry. Yeah. yeah. They've asked Bard, when look. has an accounting firm like KPMG come a cropper in some way? And it spat out some, like, case studies, and no one's checked. Like, this is the, this is a, this is the human error part of this whole story, yeah. is no one checked. Yeah. That, that gives me nightmares. <laughs> like, every time someone tells me anecdotally in an interview in my in the course of my work, I am Googling whether or not that was an actual thing. And for the academics not to have done that is just like, yeah, like you said, I'm not here to stick up for KPMG or any of these firms. Uh, but, yeah, you got to fact check your stuff. Is it worth saying that there's 
totally room here for like this identifies something that's really clear about what's happening with AI right now that needs fixing. And like mm. the company or person that comes up with a solution to um, this part of this bit of work that I've produced for you is questionable. You should go and check this or a confidence score as you work your way through a piece of work that ChatGPT or Bart has produced where it's like, this is really, really true. And this stuff's like a bit less true. And this stuff, we just made this up. <laughs> um, you know, a self-assessment by AI of its own work and its veracity based on, I mean, it's got access to lots of information. Presumably at some point it knows which bits are not linkable you know, which you couldn't go and find on a Google search in which you could. Mm. Yeah, you could sort of have that as like a heat map or something. Exactly. Yeah. I just like, I mean, I, I just like annotations, you know, <laughs> like, because the issue I find with it when I have asked it for information and, I, and it comes back with information that I know to be wrong, I come back with, well, where did you find that? Like, where did you get that from? And I, I feel like I never get an answer mm. from ChatGPT or Bard or any of the rest of them. And I'm like, I think there should be at least a function in there to almost like self-annotate. Yeah. It's like, I got this from blah. That would make it a, a much more useful tool. That's part of the black box thing though, isn't it? Mm. I mean, people are... Oh, sure. You know, the, and then it the, would be Google. The people <laughs> then, that, yeah, then, then it's just Google. <laughs> well, but the people who built the AI don't know where it got it from. There's like no path to trace some of the reasoning. And oh, right. So um, that's what neural networks often do is they put out results that you can't actually necessarily draw a, back li a line back through to the original source. Um, and so... That's one of the scary bits about self-learning AI and <laughs> and the new stuff, yeah. No doubt there'll be more of this uh, to talk about in the coming weeks, but for now, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Alex McCauley from the Tech Council. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. And Jessica Sire from the Australian Financial Review. See you later. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.